Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Comes into your mind when you hear the word religion. A few years ago, there was a comedy sketch on television of a priest on an aeroplane. And at some point during the journey, the engines failed. And the pilot gave a panicky announcement and everybody on the plane started to panic. And somebody turned to the priest who's sitting there with his dog collar on and said, We're about to die. Quick, do something religious. So the priest thinks for a moment, gets out an offering bag and hands it round to start a collection for the church spire. (laughs) Now, there was a time in this country when religion was a badge of respectability. Then religion became the hallmark of something silly but harmless something mildly ridiculous just think of the comedy value in shows like father ted the vicar of dibley and rev silly but harmless but increasingly now people are wondering if religion is harmless some are concluding that it's actually a negative force in our culture they see the damage done in the name of god and they conclude that religion is dangerous In the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks in the United States, a group of the top editors and journalists and uh, media moguls in the USA met. There were 25 people in the room, 25 of the most powerful media people in the most powerful country on earth. And one of them was a Christian, the other 24 held a secular viewpoint. And the Christian later said that the mood in the room could only be described with one word, which was fear. Fear. These highly educated intellectuals had assumed that religion was part of the past in our world and that as we became more and more enlightened throughout the 20th century, we would gradually leave it behind in the shadows. But now they realised that, that uh, religion, particularly radical religion, was on the increase and that it was dangerous. In his introduction to the book, the portable atheist, Christopher Hitchens, calls religion humanity's oldest enemy. Humanity's oldest enemy. So what do you think? As you've already heard, we did a survey recently and asked our friends and colleagues uh, to find out what they think about spiritual things. If you could ask God one question, what would it be? And a number of questions revolved around this theme, which is very, very interesting. Can't I be good without religion? Can't I be good without religion? You see, it's a great question. We all know people who don't believe in God and are fine human beings, don't we? We all know people who don't believe in God and are fine human beings, so can't we be good without religion? Well, that's a great question. And let me say that from the outset, I'm not going to try and persuade you to get religion today. I basically want to start a conversation, and hopefully we can carry it on uh, later on. I want to argue something that might surprise you, especially for someone who's a full-time employee of a church. You might think this is my resignation letter, but um, hopefully they won't fire me. Here is my thesis for today. Three points. We all want to be good. Neither religion nor irreligion can help us. But there is a third way. We all want to be good. Neither religion nor irreligion can help us, but there is a third way. That's my thesis, and I've got 22 minutes to argue it. Okay, so first of all, we all want to be good. 
I think it's a fair assumption that we all want to be good. I think it's axiomatic. We all want our lives to have value. We all want our lives to have integrity. And we all have some standards by which we measure our lives. Perhaps your standard is embodied in a person. Your heart says, if I'm like her, then I know I'm a good person. And at the same time, you have somebody over here who you're thinking, well, at least I'm not like that person who really isn't good. We all want to be good. But, as Michelle was prompting us to think, are we? Now, the most poignant expression of this desire to be good I've seen in recent years was a film directed by Steven Spielberg called Saving Private Ryan. A very successful film, powerful film, set during the invasion of Normandy in World War II. It follows the story of Captain John H. Miller, who's played by Tom Hanks, as he leads a squad on the search for a soldier called Private James Ryan. Ryan is missing in action, and he's the last surviving of four brothers. All the other brothers have been killed, and the army is determined to rescue this last son. The film is a powerful depiction of the horrors of war, but it's equally powerful in its portrayal of our need to be good. Captain Miller, who leads the search for Ryan, does so with incredible bravery and heroism. Many sacrifices are made, lives are lost to save James Ryan. And at the end, Miller lies dying. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Sorry if you haven't seen the film, Miller lies dying. And he looks Ryan in the eye and he says, he whispers with his dying words, James, earn this. Earn it. Earn it. Earn the sacrifice. And the music swells. And right before your eyes, Matt Damon changes into this older man with white hair. And he's staring into the camera. And he's now standing in a vast graveyard in France. It's full of white crosses as far as the eye can see on the horizon. And a woman comes to him by his side, looks like his wife. And she peers over his shoulder and sees the grave that he's looking at. And it's the grave of Captain Miller. He's looking at the grave of the man who gave his life to save him. And she wonders what's going on. And then James Ryan turns to her and he says, Tell me I've led a good life. What? Tell me I'm a good man. And she looks deep into his eyes and says, You are. Well, what about you? Are you a good man? A good woman? We all want to be good. But are we? And how can we know? Because I think maybe by now you're thinking what I'm thinking. What do you mean by good? It all depends, isn't it? The answer to that question. That's the critical question. What do you mean by good? And the answers we're giving will vary radically depending on your ethnic background, culture, family, your life experience, your age. For some of us, being good is about keeping moral standards. Uh, You know that being good means being faithful to your spouse, being honest, working hard, paying your taxes, giving to charity, not lying, stealing and cheating. So for you, being good is about being righteous and not being found guilty. For others, being good is about honour. You must bring honour to your family. You must avoid shame. You must avoid bringing shame on your family at all costs. 
That is what being good means to you. For some of us, being good is all about social justice. You think that private morality is basically private. But what's really important is that there's justice in the world and there's gr- the greater good is pursued for the poor and the marginalised. You spend yourself in the pursuit of justice. That is what being good is. And for others, perhaps being good is being true to yourself and being free. Nothing could be worse than for you to be restrained and constrained or have any limits placed on your personal freedom. For you, being good is about being free to define yourself. There's such different responses to the question uh, of what we mean by good. But however you answered, let me just hazard a guess. However you would answer that question, if you're really honest, when you're in your pyjamas, looking in the mirror on your own, you don't think you're living up to your own standards. You don't think you're living up to your own standards, let alone God's. How do we know if we're not being as good as we think we should be? Because we experience guilt. We feel guilty about things. Or we experience shame. Or we experience anger. We're angry with ourselves. We haven't, we've failed again. We haven't lived up. We haven't done what we should. We haven't achieved what we could have done. We feel despair. And when I say guilt, shame, anger, despair, don't just think about the best version of yourself on the best days. Think about the core of who you are on the worst days. So we have a problem, I think. We all want to be good, but deep down we know we're not as good as we should be. Now at this point, for some people, religion comes in the door. Because to a lot of people, religion is sort of the way to make up the gap in your goodness, the gap between who you are and who you feel you should be. But here's my second uh, thesis statement. We all want to be good, but neither religion nor irreligion can help us. Neither religion nor irreligion can help us. Here's what I mean. Neither getting religious and trying very, very hard to be good, nor rejecting religion and throwing off all restraints can actually help us. And I'm talking again about the deepest levels, the heart. We can all adopt some superficial changes in our lifestyle, but who we really are at the core. We're not good enough, and neither religion nor irreligion can help us. Now, the best way to explain this is through a story that Jesus told, and we read it a bit earlier on. It's a famous story, sometimes called the the parable or the story of the prodigal son, the wild, reckless son. But that title is a big mistake. Because the story is clearly about two sons, and we are meant to compare and contrast them. Quick recap of the story. There were two sons. The younger one went to his father, and he demanded his share of the estate. Do you see what he's doing? He's saying, I'm only really interested in your stuff, and I want you dead. I don't want a relationship with you, I want what you can give me. Now, to the original hearers, the first shocking thing in this story is that the father agreed. The father agreed. In the culture of the time, he should have kicked the son out of the house, disowned him, shamed him, never spoke to him again. But this father divides up his property. Probably meant selling land. He tears apart what he's built up, and he gives the youngest son his share. And the son then throws off all restraint. 
He squanders his wealth in wild living. He buys everything that his heart desires. And then he goes broke. His only job option is a zero-hours contract, minimum-wage job, feeding pigs. Now, remember that the first people who heard this story were Jewish. So they see the younger brother now has sunk so low that his only job option is to work for a Gentile feeding pigs, filthy creatures. So they see now that he's utterly degraded. And they're probably thinking, well, he got what he deserved. Have you ever seen a pig having lunch? Liz and I were on a train going through, was it Norfolk? Norfolk, and we went through some fields of pigs. My word. The fact that this brother is looking at the pigs eating and going, oh, I want some of that. Please let me in on the pods. He's really low. He's starving. He's absolutely hollow. And he's brought to his senses, it says. And he thinks, this is just insane. Look, I remember even my father's hired servants live better than this. I'm going to go home and fess up. I'm going to beg my dad to take me back, not as a son, but as a hired servant. Now, it doesn't say this, but it seems that the younger brother is trying to pay back his debt. He'll go and get a job with his dad. He doesn't expect to be accepted into the family, but he works up a plan to pay back what he's taken. But here's the second shock. The, the younger brother is still a long way off. He's on the horizon. And the father sees him. He must have been scanning the horizon. And he says that the father runs. The father runs. Now again, this is shocking in the culture of the time. He runs. Fathers in that culture did not run. We all know probably Peter Kay's impression of the dad run. You know, the dad runs. Making the, the movement of being running. but In that culture, they, they didn't run. Servants ran, children ran, even women ran. But the patriarch in charge of the house never runs. It's considered beneath his dignity. He would lose face. But this father totally forgets himself. He loves the son so much. And when he gets to him, this son who's been working with pigs, he throws his arms around him and, and gives him a bear hug. He kisses him. This is before he's had a chance to get in the shower. And the son is totally taken aback. He's, he starts his little speech that he's been working out. He says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And before he can even finish his words, the father says, You servants, come here. Bring the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. Put some sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf out and kill it. We're going to have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and now he's found. You see how the father's treating him? The best robe is the father's robe. He's clothing him with his own dignity and his own status. The ring shows that he's back in the family. The fattened calf is the very best the father has. These animals were only reserved for really big occasions like a wedding. This is how the father treats the son. With extravagant love. Undeserved love. Generosity. Now, <clears throat> excuse me, the younger son is a picture of irreligion. He's a picture of irreligion. Someone who throws off all restraint and rejects any limits to their personal freedom. Now, why do I say that? Because of the audience Jesus was addressing. Right at the start of the story, 
It says that Jesus was talking to Pharisees and teachers of the law. These were the religious establishment. Pharisees were a pressure group trying to get the Bible to be lived by in the whole culture. The law teachers were the experts in the, in the religious faith. They were critical that Jesus was fraternising with sinners and with tax collectors who were regarded as the worst of sinners in the culture. So Jesus is saying, all right, you're judging me, but let me just tell you, first of all, here's a picture of irreligion. A person who throws off all restraint and lives their own way. Now, what about us? If you're an irreligious person today, let me ask, how's it working out for you? Have you yet reached a point like the younger brother where you find that your lifestyle choices have left you empty, disappointed, hungry? You thought that pursuing this thing would, leave you, would make you fulfilled and a whole person, but now you find you've poured everything into it and you're less fulfilled than ever. Perhaps it was a relationship that you went after. Perhaps it was a career. Perhaps it was an experience. You find yourself... You've looked inside for so long to develop who you are, but it's as if there's nothing there. You try to be good on your own terms, but the things you trusted have crushed you. That's the outcome of irreligion, according to Jesus. But there's a third surprise coming in the story. It's the biggest one of all. Jesus does not say, you need to now get religion. He actually shows the religious person is in a worse position. The religious person's in a worse position. Because the, the younger brother, at least he came to his senses and he went back to his dad and humbled himself. But what about the older one? The older brother's out in the field when the party kicked off. He could hear that sort of party noise of glasses clinking. and He could smell the barbecue steak. He hears music and dancing. And he thinks, hey, it's a party. So he comes in from the field and he's taking off his overalls and his gloves and he says, what's all this about? And the servant comes out and he says, you never guess what? Your, your brother's come home. Your dad's killed the fattened calf and he has him safe and sound. Now here's the most interesting point in the whole story. To me. The anger of the older brother. The anger of the older brother. He's furious. And he refuses to go in. I'm going to stay out here. Now, once again, the father goes out to a son. This time it's the older brother, and he pleads with him. He pleads with him. Again, he's forgetting his dignity. Please, come in. Please, come and join us. Come in. But the brother is having none of it, and he speaks very rudely to the father. He doesn't call him father. He says, look. And at this point, he reveals his true heart. All these years I've been slaving for you, and I never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes home who squandered your property with prostitutes, where did that come from? You killed the fattened calf for him. Now what's going on here? He's revealed his true heart. See, all those years, the older brother, like a lot of oldest children, looked like he was a very good boy. He was high compliant. He did what he was told. He looked like he loved the father. But in reality, he was only doing it for himself. He regards his service for his father as slaving away. He's more similar to the younger brother than he cares to admit. You see, both of them were using the father. 
Both of them want the father's stuff, not relationship with him. They just have very different ways of going about it. The older brother, who's been very, very good, feels that he's entitled. He feels he's earned a good life. He deserves it. And the thing is, he hasn't really lost out. The father says he still stands to inherit. But his real heart is shown in this. He can't stand the fact that someone who hasn't worked very hard should be forgiven. Can't stand it. So furious. Now, if the younger brother represents irreligion, what about the older? He's the religious person. He shows us the heart of religion, according to Jesus. It's all about me. It's about earning favour by being very, very good. While all the while, my heart is essentially self-centred. Now, if you're a religious person here today, let me ask, what do you think is the heart of religion? It's inner experience. It's inner experience, how it works for you. The best insights I've ever heard on this were from a... uh, writer and a pastor in Manhattan, New York, called Dr. Timothy Keller, who says that the heart of religion is, I obey, therefore I'm accepted by God. I obey, therefore I'm accepted. So the motivation of being good is based on insecurity. If I'm not performing, God will reject me. I'm afraid. I obey God in order to get things from him. So when circumstances in life go wrong, I'm angry at God or I'm angry at myself because I believe that because I'm good, I should have a comfortable life. When I'm criticised, I'm furious, devastated, because it's essential that I think of myself as a good person. Any threat to my self-image must be destroyed. Prayers consist largely of asking for things and usually only heat up when you're in need. And the main purpose of prayer is to control the world around you. The heart of religion is this. When I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident, but I'm proud. And I'm unsympathetic of the weak. And when I'm not living up to my standards, I'm not confident. And I'm not humble. I feel like a failure. Wretched. We all want to be good. According to Jesus, neither religion nor irreligion can help us. Because in the end, they're both trying to do the same thing. They're both trying to take me and make myself my own Lord and rescuer. Some try to be their own Lord and rescuer by being very, very good, being religious. Others try to be their own Lord and rescuer by rejecting God and any limits to freedom, irreligion. But they're both a means of self-salvation and neither of them work. We all want to be good. Neither religion nor irreligion can help us. And finally, and more briefly, there is a third way. There's a third way. Back to our story for a moment. I've got two questions to ask of it as we wrap up this part of the meeting. Who's the father? And what's the direction of travel? Who is the father? Remember Jesus is talking to his religious audience. These Pharisees and uh, teachers of the law. And they're condemning Jesus and looking at him because he's fraternising with people who they think are bad. So Jesus tells this story to make a point to them. We've seen that the brothers represent a kind of religious position and an irreligious position. But who is the father in the story? Well, the interesting thing is that Jesus Christ, almost uniquely in the Bible, almost always refers to God as Father. 
quite rare to do that in Jewish culture. It did happen sometimes. There's a little bit of it in the Old Testament. But Jesus is remarkable. He, he always talks about God as Father. So here we have Jesus' picture of who God is, what he's really like. And it's different from every other portrayal of God in history. It's different from every other philosophy of what God might be like. This portrayal of God is so radical that actually in the early church, people, the Roman Empire didn't believe that Christianity was a religion because it was so different from any other kind of religious expression. Because Jesus is saying, God is like this Father. He loves the sons so much that he forgets himself and runs to them. His regard for them is so warm and loving. God doesn't hold what they've done against them. He goes out to them. God puts himself out for them. And his heart, his nature, is affection and love and compassion and mercy. Now I wonder if you think, if you ever think about God, do you think of him like that? Like this picture of the Father? That's what Jesus says God is like. Now if that is true, that explains the direction of travel. Because in the story, the one who goes out to rescue is the father. He's the one doing the running and bringing people back. The sons stay out until the father goes to them. And that's the heart of the Christian message. is that we don't improve ourselves by trying to be good. We never could. Michelle made it clear earlier on. Our standards might be up here. We don't even reach them. We certainly don't meet God's. But God travels to us. He shows us undeserved love, undeserved uh, affection and kindness, and he's totally faithful to us throughout our whole lives. And if you believe that, that's a third way. It's not religion. It's not irreligion either. It's something different. It's called the good news. And that's what we believe here at this church. It's historic, orthodox Christianity. It's not a religion. It's a third way. And if you believe that, it starts to change you and make you into a different kind of person. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.